Thank you for listening to this week's Freedom Church podcast. We hope it helps and inspires you. We're going to jump into Acts 16. If you have a Bible, wave it at me. Oh, a few of you, a few of you waving devices at me. Acts 16, we're going to jump into. If we were to look and go through this line by line, this would be a term's worth of material to look at and to speak to and to work through. We haven't got a term. We have about 15 minutes to have a look at this, so I'm I'm just going to whistle you through it. There's a bit we're going to read, but I'm just going to tell you through the story. For some of you, this will be familiar. For some of you, won't. This is the church springing into life, springing into action. It was nothing, and it's becoming something. It was a group of friends with their, with their Lord Jesus Christ. Peter confessed, you are my Lord and my Savior. They started to understand who he was, but that Lord had been removed. They were in confusion. They were in shock. They were in trauma. They were in bereavement. And all of a sudden, something beautiful is starting to come together. The man who is the arch persecutor of the church has become the arch leader of the church in some aspects. And it's coming together and it's forming in a different way. So Paul steps into his role. He's starting to take this wonderful story, this wonderful truth of who Christ is out to all people. This was no longer something for God's chosen elect. This was something now for everybody. And Paul and Silas, who we're going to read about in a minute, and Barnabas and others and Peter, they were off and they were off on a journey. And that was to share this most incredible transforming story with as many people as they could. And we see it in life and we see it in action. At the beginning of Acts 16, what does Paul do? He starts to gather more team around him. Why does Sim have a team? Why do you as a church have a team? Why do you have teams? Team, teamwork is right at the heart of this early forming church. Paul uh, scoops up this young guy called Timothy at this point. His mum's a Jew, his dad's a Greek. Paul's mission was out to the Gentiles. That was what he's called to do. Having someone who understood the Jewish heritage but had a Greek half of who he is, 50% of his DNA was Greek, was a great thing to do. So Paul, hey, come join my team. However, there's something we need to do before we go, but we'll talk about that later. But are you up for joining the team? Yes, I am. Paul then has to go and get circumcised. You will never be asked to do that to join any sort of team in this church. But it was something that Paul requested of uh, of. Timothy to be done because of where they knew that they were going. So he scoops him into this team. He becomes part of this team. He's a man of good character, we find out and we know. And then we start to see this. We get right the way through the book of Acts where the church is being built. There's, there's about five or six times where we get these, what, what some scholars refer to as summary statements. It's just a little pause, a little drawing in of breath. Luke, who was the author of, uh, of the book of Acts, uh, who's the same guy who wrote the gospel, of Luke, uh, the gospel after his name, Luke. He wrote this, so it's like the gospel's like part one, Acts is part two, same author, same story, but now it's about the acts of the Holy Spirit running forward. What, is, what happens next? Right the way through his book, there's just these little punctuation marks, and here we crash into one. I think it's on a slide. In uh, verse 5, it says this, so the churches were strengthened. We know there's now multiple churches. It's just in a few years. There's now multiple churches. The churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in number. Just a little pause point in verse 5. Just a little statement. Just a little update. In the midst of all of everything else that was going on, just a little update. By the way, the churches were growing and people were being added to them daily. 
And then we carry on and we jump into this story. We see that Paul clearly had a desire to go to a couple of different places and we hear that the Holy Spirit stopped him. I don't know if the Holy Spirit's ever stopped me doing anything. It doesn't tell us how it stopped Paul, but it did. Somehow he was stopped. Maybe we need to adjust our mindset and our ears sometimes to listen when the Holy Spirit says, no, don't do that. Even when it seems like a great idea. All that he was going to do was take the gospel to some more people, right? That's, a, that's, a, that's not just a good idea, that's a God idea. But the Holy Spirit said, no. He then almost turns direction and looks at another piece of land and the Holy Spirit once more says, No. How were they dealing with that? We don't know. But what we do know next is Paul falls asleep that evening and he has a dream. And he has a dream of this man from Macedonia. And in that dream, Paul interprets that, that that's where the gospel's got to go. Do you know, if you are from European descent, this is the moment the good news of Jesus Christ landed on our continent. Because there was a no, no, yes. A no, no, yes. The Macedonia is Europe, the Macedonian man. So we find Paul then immediately the next morning, the Bible says, they wake up, they make travel plans, and off they go. My family, I wish it was that mobile, but it's not that mobile. You imagine having a dream tonight that you need to go to, I don't know, France, and saying, right, let's do it, let's go. Pack our bags and off we go. That's what Paul was up to in this moment, this wonderful moment. And he heads off, and we find him arriving in the story. And this is where we'll pick it up a little bit. We find him arriving in Philippi, in Europe. He doesn't meet a Macedonian man. He meets a Macedonian woman, a lady called Lydia. We're going to pick the story up here. So we've got different things going on in this one chapter, and we're not even a third of the way through the chapter he bumps into Lydia. Lydia, uh, he goes to pray. There was no synagogue in Philippi. That's why he goes to pray. You might think, usually Paul would go to pray in the synagogue. This was a Roman colony, a very central and important colony, uh, and it, but it didn't have a synagogue in it. So what Jews would often do in, if they lived in towns where there was no synagogue, they would go and find some water, and this story picks this up. They went and found some water, and they knelt down to pray. And by this water, they, there was a group of others that gathered around, and one of them was a lady called Lydia. And we grab this story, and we pick up this story in an amazing way. And it says this, that they, they started asking questions, and Paul and, the, uh, and Silas, we know for sure, started sharing. Luke was likely to be there as well. And this woman says, the Lord softened her heart. And she received Paul's message and she followed. And her immediate response was this, come stay at my place. Come stay at my place. So they went and stayed in Paul's house. They then start the next day, they go back and they're praying. They go back to pray again. But we've got our first converts is a woman called Lydia. And not just Lydia, but her entire household, it says. I love that. Do you know, I love it when people come to faith. But there's something absolutely beautiful when it's households 
There's something just really, really beautiful about that when, the, when the, the message of God just sweeps through a whole household. And that's what we find here. We find it goes through this household. They come to faith. And here they are. They find themselves. And then the household are baptized. And then we go into the next bit. They go back to the same place to pray. And there's this woman that starts following them around. This woman... We, we, the story doesn't really unpack it much, but we know that this woman has some sort of ability to see into the future. So she's been enslaved, she's being worked, uh, she's being, uh, being sold to foresee into the future in people's lives. She's hassling Paul, but as, she wa- as Paul walks around, she is yelling this, these are the men of the Most High God and they're telling you the way to be saved. I quite would fancy that. Right? Having someone walking behind me through Chichester, yelling out, this bloke here, he's he's, he's someone who's come on a mission from God, and he's going to tell you how you can find God and how you can find salvation in God. It would certainly draw a crowd, right? Walking through Romsey, that happening. But for some reason, we don't really know why, but after a repeat, we know over a number of days, Paul eventually gets annoyed with it. (laughs) It doesn't say it's wrong, But he just says he got so annoyed to the point where he turns around and this woman, there's obviously some sort of demonic thing going on in this woman, and he delivers her and immediately bankrupts these very wealthy businessmen who have her enslaved. They are livid. Their income, their livelihood has just been annihilated by this strange Jewish bloke who's talking about this guy, Jesus, who doesn't even come from around these parts, has just bankrupted their business. In a sentence. The prayer is a sentence if you want to have a look. Incredible moment. So then it evolves and uh, these businessmen get upset. And now we're going to pick the story up here in the scripture at verse 20. I'm going to read to you. You know you're in a bad way and you haven't had a lot of sleep where you get hold of your Bible and you're trying to move it up with your finger. That's what I just did. Confession. <laughs> Come on, why aren't you moving? Oh, wrong device. Let's pick it up at verse 20. I just did it again. Let's pick it. I need to hold it. That's what I need to do. It's not going to get bigger by me stroking it. <laughs> this is uh, picking up this story. The story is a little, a little way through here. They're talking about Paul and Silas. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrate ordered for them to be stripped and beaten with rods. They'd been severely flogged, and they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When they received these orders, they put them in the inner cell and they fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken and at once, all the doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. When he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're still here. The jailer called for the lights, uh, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. An amazing encounter. This story, though, can get lost in a couple of directions. I want to pull two out this morning. There's loads of directions this story kind of goes in. You've got this absolute injustice of people being thrown in prison without any trial uh, because some powerful entrepreneurs, powerful businessmen have lost their business. They're they're beaten. We uh, we know that uh, this crime is being taken very seriously because because of those things I've said. But also, these prisoners get put in the inner cell. This was the safest part of the prison. Not only are they in the inner cell, they're in stocks. They can't move. We know that they're, they're, they're trapped, they're tied down. Uh, and so we know what was going on here was uh, very, very serious. And they'd had a, a complete thrashing before that. But what's Paul and Silas's response to this outrage, this injustice, this beating? this imprisonment, this being locked up, they start singing a song. I don't know about you, if that happened to me, I'd be livid. I'd, I'd be outraged that, that something so unjust had happened to me. I'd be outraged that I'd been kind of tried without a trial. I'd be absolutely furious. I'd be way too angry to sing a song. I'd also be way too angry to pray a prayer, I think, if I'm being quite honest with you. Other than maybe one of those fish-clenching ones at God rather than in communion with God. What's What's going on? Kind of prayer. But they start to sing. They start to pray. And we know that this singing and praying, and I don't think it's a huge leap, that there's joy in it because it attracts attention. It says all the rest of the prisoners heard. Now, either they had a great PA system like you guys, or they were singing pretty loudly. So it can't have been a kind of moment with God. It must have been something that was in them that was so deep that it came out, and it was coming out with a velocity that attracted attention. Everyone heard it. I think those sort of things can only come from a place of joy somewhere. It doesn't come from anger doesn't come from frustration. doesn't come from injustice. It comes from a deep-seated joy in the Lord. Then there was this earthquake that came. The earthquake did not destroy the whole building. What's that about? Surely an earthquake levels a building, right? It doesn't say that it leveled the building. It says it shook it. All the doors flew open. The chains fell off their feet. I know nothing about geography, but that's not a normal earthquake, right? If an earthquake shook this place now, we'd expect the whole thing to come down, not just some doors to pop open and some chains to fall off your ankles. God was in this earthquake, but earthquakes were familiar in this region. As they are today, this was modern-day Greece around, Macedonia around the area. Earthquakes happen there all the time, but this was different. We know that Paul's case was being taken seriously because the guard's first reaction was to draw out his sword and to attempt to end his own life. And the reason he did that was because those who were guarding, if you let the people you were guarding escape, you took on their punishment. The guard was assuming that these guys, Paul and Silas, were going to be put to death. He thought, I'd rather I do that than, than some other 
hideous Roman method that if you're a Christian, you'll be familiar. There's some pretty hideous methods that the Romans used to put people to death, including the one that our Savior, Jesus, endured. Paul stops him. Whoa, 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 whoa. We haven't got anywhere. Again, rewind, dumping myself into that situation. The doors fly open, the chains come off. My first reaction, leg it! The Lord's, the Lord's answered this injustice. Off I go. What does Paul do? He sits there. Silence. We don't know why they did that, but it's, an, it's, it's a weird reaction. I would suggest it's a godly reaction. The Lord was doing something which we, we, we don't fully know about. But because they didn't leg it, a man's life was saved. That jailer's life was saved. And not only was his life saved in that moment, but we then have this wonderful thing. If you are a Christian, the best thing that anyone could ever, ever say to you is this. What must I do to be saved? I don't know if you've ever have, had that happen. I've been following the law for 20 years, and I can think of one moment where someone almost used that phrase to me at their initiation. They came and found me and said, I need to know more about who Jesus is. What what must I do to be saved? This doesn't happen a lot, but so shocking was what happened. The jailer's response was, sirs. Another interesting dynamic. He He was in charge. He was the governor of the jail. Whatever had happened had so shocked him, he was now calling these men, sir. What, what must I do to be saved? And then what we know is this. He and his whole household come to faith and are baptized. This is an absolutely action-packed chapter. There's more that comes on later, but I'm, I, I, you can read that later if you want, how the story ends. They end up being released, but it, even that's a whole strange series of events that goes on. I had, as I said earlier, I had the privilege of being out in Lebanon earlier in the year, and I met a guy called Ahmed, and I wanted to show you his picture, but I couldn't manage to get it on the screen this morning. If you want to see what he looks like, come and ask me later. I'll show you on my phone. He's 22 years old. He fleed for his life uh, out of Syria into Lebanon, uh, a Shia, Shia Muslim, ran for his life. And the church that we're working with run this refugee camp. See those hills in the background? The mount- well, they're mountains, they're not hills. The other side of those mountains, that is Syria. Uh, And this is a refugee camp that a church of 30 people are running. 50 families living in their their camp that they run, a refugee camp. It's the only refugee camp that's not being run either by landowners or by the big NGOs. It's being run by a local church out of the 1,500 refugee camps in this one valley. Now the church has got hold of this and they are supporting their schools in the camps. My church got involved because we thought, crumbs, I don't know what to do about Syria. But I do know I can't do anything. Doing nothing is not an option. Can't walk past things like that. So we hooked up with a local bunch of Christians who run a charity that work with providing play and education for children all around the world. And we said, what are you doing? They said, we're in Lebanon. We're trying to start some schools in the refugee camps. It's a million, million people, over half a million kids that have got no school. And they haven't had for the last two or three years, and they're not going to have for the next two or three years unless we do something about it. Syria is not going to sort itself out in the next two or three years unless some miraculous thing happens, which would have to be the Lord. 
I met this guy, Ahmed, and some Christians from the church have been supporting him and his family. He was a graduate, he just graduated as he left Syria, uh, and he started working for the charity and teaching in one of the schools, teaching, it was all primary school age, teaching children. And as we were about to leave his uh, tent, his house, where he, his family lived, uh, he told us that his wife was heavily pregnant. Like, you know when, you know when women are so heavily pregnant, you, it, you just feel sorry for them? <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I hope that doesn't sound patronizing. I don't mean to, but you just look at what someone's carrying, you think, oh my goodness, this woman was so heavily pregnant. And I said to Ahmed through the interpreter, When's your wife due? And he, and he said, next week, her baby is due. And it was his first child. And then the interpreter who'd been with them started to tell me the story. He said, when they arrived, they, they've been in this camp now for over two years. They've been trying to have children, and they couldn't have children. So the uh, Lebanese interpreter was telling me, so I asked if I could pray for them. And so I prayed for them, uh, and they've been trying to have a child for 18 months. And they couldn't, and she fell pregnant that next month. And so that uh, baby uh, in her womb was the result of a Christian's prayer. Church, 30 people. Don't ever count yourselves out of anything. And I was blown away by that. But then as we were walking out his tent, he said to the interpreter, who'd become a friend of his, he said, you, I know you've got to take these guests on, but you must come back. This is all in Arabic. We only got it translated for us. You must come back. He said, I had a dream uh, and I need you to help me with my dream. I don't understand it. And so the interpreter said, well, we can, we've got a few minutes. Let's just wait. Stick the kettle on again. Let's just wait. He said, what, what, what was it? He said, um, I met this man in my dream. And, I, and he looked very familiar, but I didn't know him. And he was clothed all in white. You know where this story's going, right? And he said, um, I said, I don't, don't know who you are. Uh, I've been said to this man, and the man said, yes, you do. You do know who I am. Uh, and he said, no, I don't. And they had this dialogue, and he said, look. So Ahmed, in the end, turned around and said, what, what are you here for? And he said, your child. He said, I've come to name your child. It's a Shia Muslim in a, in a camp filled with Muslim refugees. He said, you need to call your child Adam. And those of you who've kind of read the Bible a little bit, there's a lot of significance around Adam and his name and what came from him and all of that sort of stuff. And so the interpreters are born again Christian, just, cry, just weeping, listening to this story. And we're going, what? What's he saying? What's he saying? What's he trying to get hold of this story? And he said, so I want to ask you who the man is in my dream. I didn't get his name. And I want to ask you why I should call my son Adam. Obviously, they'd had no scan. They're living in a refugee camp. They had no scans on this child, whether it's a boy or a girl. God moves in dark places in incredible ways. Another work that we are involved with as a church is working people who've been through uh, sexual trauma, through sexual abuse. We had a young child recently, and lots of the, the ways we try and help children who've been through that hideous trauma. It's hideous for an adult, but like multiply that out for a child. And a lot of the ways that we do that is through play and through therapy. And this child was drawing a picture. And so the therapist said, so who, who's in the picture? There's two people in the picture, the child and an adult. And she said, um, she said, oh, it's me. And the child was holding the hand of this adult. And she said, who, who's the 
adult, the, the abuse of this child had come through her family, by the way. Not, not mother, but other parts of the family. And she said, oh, he's a man I met in my dream. This is a six-year-old. A man I met in, my, in, in Chichester six months ago. A man I met in my dream. And he's called Jesus, apparently. And he told me that he would keep me safe. And so every time I feel scared, I just think of Jesus. It's a child from a completely unchurched background. Isn't the Lord amazing? God does some amazing things in some dark places. And I want to pull two things out for you, and then we're going we're to pray. The first is this. Their reaction to their darkness, to their captivity, was to praise. Was to pray and to sing worship. When life kicks us in the face, what is our reaction? Ow, very good answer. <laughs> Mine is one of frustration and rage. That's not fair, that's unjust. But there was something so deeply seated in Paul and Silas that they could come out of that injustice and get back to the, the core, the important, which was who God was, not who they were. Are we able, when we're facing complete injustice and outrage, to step out of who we are and focus on who God is? They were in a dark place. They were in the most secure part of the prison. There would have been no light there. You, when you read the story, they called for light. It would have been pitch black. It was the darkest, most secure place in the prison. Yet they praised. Some of you might find yourself in really dark secure places where you are chained and trapped. My encouragement to you is to use this wonderful key that the Lord gives us for the locks around our ankles and the locks on the doors. It's called worship. It's called praise. It's doing what we did this morning. So if you're feeling locked and trapped, use the most lethal key that's on your, your chain. Sing. <laughs> Praise. If you've got a voice as bad as mine, just it doesn't matter. Somehow God doesn't mind. The person standing next to me usually does, but God's okay with how bad my voice is. Worship your way to freedom. When you worship, something happens in our heart that sanctifies and releases and frees us. Give it a go. If you're trapped somehow today, whether it be in your family, in your workplace, whatever's going on, I challenge you to go and do this, how, no matter how dark the place is, just this week, go and find three or four occasions where you just worship God. And if you don't know how to do that, if you don't know the songs, either go on YouTube or open up the Psalms. Choose whichever one you want. And worship God. Read them. Use someone else's words if you don't have your own Worship in the dark places. And then this is the last thing I want to say. And I want to say this as a prophetic word over your church. As people get free, there is an inevitable consequence of that freedom. It's called salvation. Right? These things come together. They're joined up, man. When, when God rescues you out of prison, when God rescues you out of dark stuff, there's some questions that follow, like, how did that happen? Especially when it's not something that can be explained. What, what went on there? How did that work? How did that happen? 
And our answer is really simple. It's in a name, and as we were just seeing, it's the name of Jesus, and salvation comes. Salvation comes. Rescue and salvation came to Paul in this way, and Silas through being able to walk out of that prison. But that wasn't, we can read that story and talk about a miraculous escape. That story is about the jailer's salvation. And not just the jailer, him and his household that were baptized. When we find ourselves in dark places, when we manage to sing our way out of them, salvation comes. So although God never would put you in a dark situation like Paul found himself in here, if you remember to sing your way out of it, salvation will come. You might not leave the prison. Paul left the prison. You might not leave that prison. But if you can take your eyes off of who you are, put your eyes onto God, sing your way out of that place. Worship your way out of it, and salvation will come. Because it doesn't make sense to sit in a prison and sing doesn't make sense. To call for your lawyer does. To hold tight till the morning so the justice process can happen, that makes sense. To sing doesn't. It hurts people's brains. These other prisoners were all freed at the same moment. <coughs> Let me throw this out to you as well. As you worship your way out of your darkest places, guess what? Other people's chains fall off too. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? If I can just deal with me, if I can take responsibility for me and not getting so down and obsessed with my own situation, but putting my eyes back on God, not on myself, stop looking in the mirror and look to the Lord, and I can worship my way out of that, other people's chains will fall off too. The young guy who led, who went on to lead this young man, Ahmed, to the Lord, he'd been unemployed. His nation has a terrible, Lebanon has a terrible unemployment situation because they're just flooded with people. He'd been unemployed for two years. He had a young family. His wife had no work either. Was he sitting there frustrated at his lack of employment, banging his fist on God's big desk, going, what is this about? No, he was singing his way out. And the inevitable consequence of that was salvation came to the people around him and to his household. He was set free to his household. Do we think we can try and do that? It's a massive challenge. I, I say that kind of nervously because I'm asking myself, of course, at the same time. Let's take a moment. Just think about if your life's anything like mine, there's going to be at least one dark corner right now. Like my life's good. Don't get me wrong. The Lord's kind. But there's always dark corners in our lives. Things that we're worried about things that have got us trapped. I want us just to practice this morning singing our way out of those places. Let's sing our way out. Let's worship our way out of those places. And let's trust that salvation will come. And then this next incredible step happens is everyone else's chains fall off around us too. Why don't we stand if we're able to do that? Could you just give the person next to you a gentle nudge?
just just check they're there and alive and with it. So I don't I don't know how this I don't know who's really in the room. Some people are friends, some are becoming friends, lots of unknown faces. If you're here this morning and you've never encountered freedom, it can be found in one place and one place alone, and that is in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that will fully unchain you. The world will throw loads of ideas and programs and schemes at you, but it's found in Christ Jesus. Our answer to everything as Christians is Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. We only need to know one answer. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't say that you've made that step to say Jesus and it's like putting a key in a lock and turning it and everything changes for the rest of your life. That's my story from 20 years ago. Then I want to say this morning, pick up that key and give it a go and see what happens. You can find freedom. For the rest of us, there'll be some people in this room and I don't know your stories. You're not familiar to me in that way. I know some of you You need to sing your way out this morning. You need to worship your way out of some dark places. And that may sound terrifying, but God wants to lead you out this morning. God wants to undo chains and lead you out of places. I'm going to let the expert lead us in that. (laughs) Let's let Jim lead us out of those places. If you want to know more about who Jesus is, I'm going to be standing over here. Just come and ask me, and I'm happy to explain some more, to introduce some more. But family, you know each other in this room. You know people who are trapped in dark situations. I I don't. Can you minister to one another this morning? Is that okay? Because that's kind of like what families do. We look after each other. And you don't need to come up with a cunning prayer this morning or a clever prayer that you think the Holy Spirit might go, well done, I'll give you an 8 out of 10 for that one. You just need to worship. We're going to use a song that Jim's going to choose. Can we have something that's a bit declaration? Maybe the last one we did. It's a bit of a declaration, isn't it? And we're going to sing our way out of those dark places this morning. Chains will come off. But maybe if you know someone here who's in a dark place, always ask, do you mind? And especially because this morning you're not going to be praying for them. You're going to be singing over them. (laughs) You might just get permission for that. But let's use the words that have been written for us. And let's declare who God is over one another. And let's sing people into freedom this morning. For more information about Freedom Church, please go to www.freedomchurch.uk. Thank you for listening.